Well, you may recall from church history, the Roman Catholic Church practice of imparting indulgences. According to their official doctrine, an indulgence is a remission before God of the temporal punishment due to sin. In other words, they say indulgences, they don't really forgive you your sins or deal with your eternal punishment. They just take care of that temporal punishment. And what's that? Well, to them, that is purgatory. Purgatory is a place, according to Catholics, where the faithful go after they die to finish paying and being punished for their sins. Indulgences then remove or eliminate some or all of this penalty. Now, that's not found in Scripture, so we don't believe that. We don't practice that. But for Catholics, it's a pretty sweet deal in their mind because you don't want to have to spend 10,000 years in purgatory before you go to heaven, do you? So throughout church history, many devoted Catholics have worked very hard to earn indulgences. Now, you wonder, how do you do that? How exactly do you earn an indulgence? Well, you could say a special prayer, perform an act of devotion, go on pilgrimage to a holy site. Those are all still valid. You can still earn indulgences in the Catholic Church today. But throughout church history, there was one special way people could earn pardon from their sins or remission from their guilt, and that's through almsgiving. Just give a little money to a good cause, like the building of a cathedral, and the priest has the authority to give you indulgences, lots of indulgences. You can imagine how quickly such a prospect would become corrupt. The whole notion is unbiblical to start with, and then you place it in the hands of godly men. It's going to turn into highway robbery, and that's exactly what happened, especially in the Middle Ages. The church had professional pardoners that would go from town to town to collect money for the building of cathedrals to fill the Pope's coffers through the sale of indulgences. They promised salvation from damnation in return for some money. They promised the ability to spring some of your loved ones from purgatory in exchange for a donation. The famous slogan from the church's most aggressive collector, Johann Tetzel, was, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, another soul from purgatory springs. This is how the Catholic Church funded pretty much the Crusades and the building of so many of their cathedrals. I especially love the story behind the building of, of Butter Tower in the ruined cathedral. During Lent, people were required to fast from certain foods, including butter. It would be a sin to break that fast. But the church offered a workaround. They sold indulgences that would remit the sin of breaking the fast to eat butter. And so what most people did was just they just bought the indulgence because they really wanted their butter. And all the money that was raised that way went to build this tower. It came to be known as Butter Tower. There are many more stories like this showing just how wicked and corrupt the selling of indulgences was. It's essentially the biggest scam in history run by the Catholic Church. You have poor, ignorant, common people who don't know better. They're held captive by the church. They're manipulated by a fear of hell. And they're told basically you can make it all better by a, a donation. The Pope and the church get filthy rich. And meanwhile, the people are poor and destitute. But they get a nice people, piece of paper that says your sins have been remitted. Sounds like a great deal. But this is just the MO of false teachers. They're wolves disguised in sheep's clothing, pretending to care for the flock. But in reality, they don't care for the flock. They just want to fleece the flock. And in the meantime, lead many people astray in the process. Such false teachers are ripe within the Catholic Church. But even us Protestants are not without our own brand of false teacher. Just look no further than the prosperity preachers and their wealth transfer schemes. 
And what do some of these preachers offer? They offer everything that the working man wants. Health, wealth, getting out of debt, miracles, a better life. They can all be yours. God is ready to pour out his blessing on your life. You just first need to give them $1,000. You've got to plant a seed. There's never been a harvest without a seed. So first you've got to plant that seed in faith. And so countless people who can't even afford $1,000 are chastised, guilted, and fooled into giving the money so as to receive a blank check promise signed with invisible ink. But beware. Beware such men as these and be on guard against wolves and sheep's clothing. That is the message that Jesus has for us in our passage for this morning. Open your Bibles now to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. We'll be finishing off this chapter today, and, and here at the end, we find some very serious words of warning coming from Jesus toward false teachers, especially those who disguise themselves as shepherds. The situation then is really not a lot different from what we see going on today and throughout church history. You have wicked and godless men who attach themselves to the things of God, to the church, in order to fuel and feed their own selves. At the end of the day, that's what they're after. The exaltation of their self. They don't really live for God or love, love God. They're, they're in it for themselves. That's why they're so desperate for fame and fortune. And that's why the church is so attractive to them. Because there are plenty of opportunities to extract prestige and wealth from unsuspecting sheep. In all their living, not to make God's name great, but their own name great. And as a sure sign of a false believer. In the case of Mark 12, the chief culprits in Christ's day were the scribes and the Pharisees. We've seen these guys plenty, but their presence really ramps up in these, these days leading up to the death of Christ. Quick reminder, the scribes, These were the guys that they were the interpreters and the guardians of the Jewish law. And many of them were also Pharisees. Those were the guys who strictly tried to observe all the law. But they are hypocrites because on the inside they really worshipped and lived for themselves. Merely going through the motions of righteousness on the outside. And so whenever Jesus ran into them, he exposed that hypocrisy. He rebuked them. But they never repented. They simply hated him for it. And now things are even worse. A little while ago, we saw at the beginning of chapter 11, Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, marking the final week of his life. And the next day, Jesus entered the temple and he cleaned house. He drove out all the people who were changing God's house of prayer into a a place of business. And that made the elders and the priests and the scribes look terrible. Jesus was exposing their wicked and corrupt operation in the temple, making them look bad. And now, after that event, they really hated him and they really wanted him dead. And that's why the following day, day three of of Christ's week in Jerusalem, that's the day we're still in, they tried their very hardest to trap Jesus publicly and get him arrested. They sent wave after wave of attacker to Jesus to try and you know, verbally trip him up, catch him in some self-condemning statement so that they could arrest him. And that's what we've been studying from the end of chapter 11 here all the way through the end of chapter 12. But it hasn't worked. They've failed every single time. And every time, Jesus has turned their trap back on them, making them look foolish in return. 
And by the end of chapter 12, they realize plan A is not going to work. Plan A, trying to trap Jesus in public, is just not going to work. So now they're going to resort to plan B, which is to trap Jesus in private. Get him alone, arrest him, bring up some false charges, have him killed. That's what's going to happen. And that's going to happen soon. Jesus knows that. That's part of the plan. He knows he has to go to the cross. It's inevitable for him. But he's not going to go without first exposing and condemning their hypocrisy one more time. And that's what he does here at the very end of chapter 12. Jesus has finished enduring wave after wave of their attacks and traps, but it's not enough. He's not going to let them go without hearing some strong words of warning and exposing them as wolves in sheep's clothing. His disciples, which includes us, must be warned against the danger of men who claim to be shepherds, but in reality are spiritually dead and leading the flock astray. Jesus has zero tolerance for such wolves. And he doesn't mince words when it comes to their hypocrisy or their judgment. Mark 12, 38 through 44 is our text. We'll read as we go and we'll finish this chapter this morning. But I want you to follow along as we go through this passage because everything Jesus says still applies today. Nothing has changed. There are still many who make it their business to prey on God's people. And you have to learn to watch out and be on guard against such deceivers. You have to be cautioned. And that's how Jesus started. To to begin, first observe, number one, the caution against false teachers. Number one, the caution against false teachers. Starting in verse 38. Verse 38 says, In his teaching he was saying, Beware of the scribes. And I already stopped there just for for the moment. Jesus, he's still teaching in the temple complex on this third day of his final week. And after refuting his opponents, starting in verse 35, he, he teaches the crowds. He turns to the crowds. And first, he exposes the false teaching of the scribes. These guys claim to be the experts in the Jewish law, but they can't even get simple passages about the Messiah right. So he exposes their false teaching. Now in verse 38, he turns to expose their false character. And he starts with a stern warning, beware of the scribes. Be careful of them. Be watchful. Be on guard against them. Why? Because they're dangerous. They seek to lead you astray. They seek to devour you. Even when surrounded by foxes, hens are pretty safe when they're in the hen house. But what happens if just one fox gets inside? You would devour them all. And so you must continually be on guard. This is a present active command. Constantly be watchful. Always keep your eyes open. Be discerning. I mean, look, if you took a real wolf and dressed it up in a sheep costume, you wouldn't fool anybody. I mean, it'd be completely obvious. That, that wouldn't fool anybody unless you're just totally oblivious to your surroundings. But the problem is that a lot of Christians are totally oblivious to their spiritual surroundings. Why do you think there are so many commands and admonitions in Scripture to watch out for false teachers? Because God knows how easily his people can be led astray, how they are prone to wander. Listen, just because you walk into a church, you see some guy standing behind a pulpit with a cross in the background, even with his Bible open, it doesn't necessarily mean he's a good teacher or a faithful shepherd. 
Rather, it is on you to be discerning and to be watchful. You have to evaluate, does this, how does this person handle God's word? Does he even use God's word? Does he use it properly? But how many people do you know who have no such discernment? They see a shiny guy with slick hair, clever speech. He's really funny, he's just fun to listen to, gets him going. And Next thing you know, they have their checkbook out. Just beware. Such threats can come from outside the church and inside the church. That was Paul's warning to the Ephesian elders as he left them in Acts chapter 20. Then he said to them, I'll read it for you, Acts 20 verse 29. He said, that, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. First, you need to heed this caution. Yes, it's the duty of your shepherds to watch out on your behalf, but you too are called to to be on guard, to be discerning. Jesus himself elsewhere said to all people in Matthew 7.15, he said, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. It's a serious warning, and you're meant to take it seriously. And that being the case, it should make you wonder, okay, how? How exactly do you spot the wolf in sheep's clothing? How do you identify these false teachers? Well, like Jesus said right after that, you will know them by their fruits. Sometimes, oftentimes, the character of a person speaks way louder than their words. False teachers always fit a certain profile, and you would do well to get to know the character of a false teacher. And back to Mark 12, that, that's number two, the character of false teachers. Secondly here, the character of false teachers. Back to verse 38, it says, In his teaching he was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses and for appearance's sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. This is no mere neutral depiction of the scribes and Pharisees. Every phrase here that he lists is it's really a barbed expose of their phoniness. They claim to be godly spiritual leaders, but that can be further from the truth, and their character proves it. Their MO matches that of false teachers all throughout history. First, you'll, you'll observe they're marked by pride. They're marked by pride. He says they, they love to walk around in long robes. The scribes had quite a, quite a get-up. Of note was their long, flowing prayer shawl. The Jews commonly wore garments that had tassels on the end. It actually goes back to Numbers chapter 15, where God commanded the people to put tassels on the end of their garments as a reminder of the commandments. And that's not a bad thing for them. Jesus himself actually wore garments that had tassels on the end. But the scribes were known for lengthening their shawls and their tassels that they almost touched the floor to show how supremely devout they were. And together with their bulky outfit and flowing cloak or robe, they were instantly recognizable. You couldn't miss them. And that's the point. They wanted to be instantly recognized. Wherever they went, you would notice them and you would honor them. That's why, they, that's why they did this. 
It's like today, if you saw someone walking around 24-7 in their college graduation cap and gown, with that little yellow tassel for graduating with honors, it's just, that's, that's how they dressed always. Why would someone do that? Because they want you to know just how smart they were. They, they graduated with honors. Do you see the tassel? And these scribes walking around, they want you to know how spiritual they are. They're fueled by pride, like Jesus said of them in Matthew 23. They do their deeds to be noticed by men. They're fueled by pride. And being so recognized, they're all so accustomed to, verse 38 says, respectful greetings in the marketplaces. It's considered a great offense to see a scribe walk by and not bow in deference. They like to be greeted with honorific titles like rabbi or father or leader. You can, you can imagine every time they're, they're greeted, their head just puffs up a little bit more. They love the recognition. It makes them feel so important and powerful. They also love to be seated at, at the honorable places. At the synagogue, they had reserved seating. It's like, like the pew behind me. There is a seat in the front of the synagogue right next to the, to the altar or to the, the, the chest that contained the scrolls. Had a little bench reserved for them facing the crowd. Everyone was looking at them as a place of honor. Same thing at banquets. They would sit right next to the honored guest. It was all about recognition. It was all about them. First and foremost, false teachers are marked by their pride. Anyone can claim to love God, to live for God. But when you, when you examine their actions, it's evident they really love and live for self. Secondly, they're mocked by their greed. It's really part and parcel with their pride. If someone loves themselves, then they're going to love money, right? I mean, just, it goes hand in hand. But what makes the scribes truly detestable is one of their main avenues for gaining money, one of their revenue streams. And verse 40 says, they devour widows' houses. The ancient world was very difficult for widows. It's extremely challenging for women to live on their own, to make a wage on their own, especially after their husband died. They're often at the mercy of the community. And that's what the scribes were supposed to do. One of their assumed duties was to help wives, or rather widows, plan their estates after their husband died. Their husbands had controlled the money. They didn't know what to do. The scribes stepped in to help. Of course ensured that a lion's share of the funds went to them for their holy work or to the temple. And I'm sure they promised these widows that, of course, that the temple or the local synagogue will, will take care of you as you get older. But I'm also sure that many of these promises went unfulfilled. In God's eyes, it's really one of the worst things you can do. Several times in the Old Testament, God describes the worst of the worst, the, the, the most wicked and vile people who merit God's swiftest judgment. And what are they known for? God says they're known for plundering, defrauding, and taking advantage of orphans and widows. These are members of our society. They're the most defenseless, helpless, and needy. And to care for them, to to give to them, that's to be like God. But to take from them, to rob them, that is to be like Satan. And is any wonder, any wonder that elsewhere Jesus said of the scribes, you are of your father the devil. They're marked by pride. They're marked by greed. And thirdly, they're marked by hypocrisy. Look again at verse 40. Jesus said, they're also known for their prayers. He says, for appearance sake, they offer long prayers. 
One of their sayings was that much prayer is sure to be heard. So they prayed for a long time, and they repeated the same words over and over again as if God had to hear them. And they also prayed out loud. They prayed really loud because they wanted people to hear them. This was a show. Their prayers were often uttered for the sake of their eavesdroppers, not for God. And that's pretty much the definition of religious hypocrisy, performing some spiritual deed to be noticed by men. They're two-faced. When no one's around, their devotion grows cold. But when there's a crowd, it's showtime. It's time to show people how godly they were. It's time to, to really engage. Jesus had harsh words of warning against such religious hypocrisy. Back in the Sermon on the Mount, again, he was targeting the scribes. He said this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. He said, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. He says in verse 5, When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. And he goes on. But look, pride, greed, hypocrisy. These are the telltale signs of a false teacher. So beware. Beware such men. Beware following them. Beware being enticed by them. Beware becoming like them. You're not immune. These are also signs of false believers. For those who fall prey to such falsehood, become just like their wicked shepherds. Make sure you're not like them. Because a greater condemnation awaits those who claim to love and live for God, but in reality love and live for themselves. And this leads to number three, the condemnation awaiting false teachers. Number three, the condemnation awaiting false teachers. After giving the caution against false teachers and the character of false teachers, Jesus gives the condemnation awaiting false teachers. He says pretty plainly at the end of verse 40, these will receive a greater condemnation. Scripture teaches that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, all stand justly condemned before God. God is righteous. God must judge sin. We're all sinners. But the good news, though, is that in Christ you can be forgiven. Through his sacrificial death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, you can be saved. If you bow the knee, if you confess Christ as Lord, if you humble yourself and follow him in faith, trusting in his finished work, you can be spared from judgment, for he came and already paid the price for you. And so like Romans 8.1 says, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But for those who reject God and his Son, though, there's no good news. There's only bad news. If you reject the living water, the only means of salvation, you're going to have to pay for your own sin. And if you lead others astray, there's only worse news. If you lead others away from the living water and you participate in their destruction, there will be for you a greater condemnation. He says. Jesus himself reserved 
the harshest words of judgment for such wolves in sheep's clothing. Then the scribes and the Pharisees. You see that nowhere better than the parallel passage in Matthew 23. I want you to turn there. I want you to see this for yourself. This is the same instance Jesus speaking here. And you'll see how he unloads on these scribes and Pharisees for their hypocrisy. Matthew 23. Really, this whole chapter is devoted to him listing woes against these hypocrites. And look what he says in verse 13. We'll look at many of these kind of rapid fire. This is the same moment in the temple teaching the crowds, the same context. It's just Matthew tells us more of what he says later on. He says, verse 13, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Verse 33, You serpents... You brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? So now you understand, I wasn't exaggerating. Jesus really unloads on them. And maybe you've never seen this side of Jesus before. But you have to understand, this is his righteous indignation against those who have shut themselves off of the kingdom because of their pride. And they've also shut everyone who follows them off from the kingdom. These men were chiefly responsible for leading thousands of Jews astray. And Jesus has no tolerance for false teachers. So at the very least, the very least, just take Jesus seriously when he says beware. Verse 38, the command, beware. Be on guard for such men and women. They exist today. Turn on your TV, you will see them. Enter some churches, you will find them. Beware. The prideful, the greedy, the hypocrites shut themselves out of the kingdom. And if you follow them, if you listen to them, guess where you wind up? There's a great danger for those who actually fall prey to such false teachers. And to prove it, finally we have, number four, the case in point. Fourthly here, the case in point. And you see what I mean? Look at verse 41. The text actually continues, and it says in verse 41, And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how people were putting money into the treasury and many rich people were putting in large sums. After Jesus finishes speaking to the crowd, he changes location. He was in the court of the Gentiles, but now he's passed through the dividing wall around the temple and he's entered the court of the women. So-called because that was as far as women could go. 
Still wasn't close to the actual temple building itself. This was still a courtyard outside. But this is where the treasury was. This treasury featured 13 chests with opening shaped like trumpets. Each had an inscription indicating what the money would be used for, you know, what type of offering or free will offering. And these openings were made of brass so that when you threw your coins in, it would make that distinct, you know, metal on metal clanking sound for all to hear. Pretty loud. It's kind of like today at the market, they have those coin star machines. You know what I'm talking about. One time we dumped in a jar of coins and it's obnoxious how much noise those machines make. And everyone was looking. They must have thought we were millionaires. It turns out it was like $13. But you get the picture, and it's, just picture that sound. And this was near Passover, so there's tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of pilgrims all converging on Jerusalem, all making their yearly donation. So this courtyard, this treasury, would have been very crowded. Jesus takes his disciples into this court, finds a place to sit, and just does some people watching. He can't help but notice, verse 41 says, that there are many rich people putting in large sums of money. Surely these rich people wanted to be noticed. They make a show of dumping in a large bag full of coins. It makes a loud, a loud ruckus. Everyone can hear just it's a bag full of coins into these trumpet-shaped openings. Everyone hears, everyone turns their head and thinks, wow, that guy must be rich. Look how much money he's putting in. And they think, wow, that guy must be spiritual. Look how much money he's putting in. But not everyone this day had such lofty offerings. Verse 42 continues and says, A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Now, you've probably heard this story before. This probably rings a bell, the story of this widow offering her two mites, her two cents. It's a famous story in the Gospels. You have this lady, and it's obvious to all that she's a poor widow. She wears distinct, tattered clothing. She's come to make her offering, and what does she give? It says nothing but two small copper coins. word for coin here refers to the absolutely lowest coin they had, that the cheapest, the least valuable coin in their currency. You may remember a denarius. That's a day's wage back then. So how much money do you make working one day? That's a denarius. Well, this coin is equivalent to one sixty-fourth of a denarius. And this is what she's offering for the year. So it's clear. She has nothing. She gives pretty much nothing. This is nothing. In the grand scheme, her offering is insignificant. It would not be noticed. It probably wouldn't even make it on the balance sheet. But her offering did catch the attention of Jesus. Look at verse 43. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owed, all she owned, rather, all she had to live on. First we have a commendation. Jesus sees this poor widow and he does commend her. Not for how much she gave, but for how little she left afterward. She had given everything to God. It seems like if you had two cents left to your name, you'd just give one. You still have be given 50%. That's more than most people. But she gave everything to God, trusting God to provide for her afterward. And Jesus does commend her. Meanwhile, the rich people, after they gave, they were still filthy rich. 
they didn't even notice the, the money they gave being gone. And based upon the wording of Jesus here, it is fair to see a commendation of sacrificial giving. I mean, no, it's true. God doesn't need your money. He wants your heart. Your giving should merely be a reflection of your heart for him. The amount matters less than the heart behind the act. What, God, what honors God is giving to him sacrificially at the expense of yourself. You value God more than yourself, than your stuff, than your selfish interests. You're happy to give to him, even at a cost to yourself. That is honoring sacrificial giving. However, that's not the main point of this little episode. Yes, sacrificial giving is an important stewardship principle. We know that. It's taught often in Scripture. But this story is less about commendation and actually more about condemnation. Not of the widow, but of those who have done this to her. You always hear the story told with a focus being on praising this poor widow. And and again, there's a fair bit of commendation for her sacrificial heart. That's fair. But the context argues that the real focus here is another stinging condemnation of Israel's corrupt spiritual leaders and their bankrupt religious system that would reduce this poor widow to nothing. She's clearly ignorant. She doesn't know better. She's held captive by the Jewish legalist system or legalistic system, which tells her if she wants to be holy, if she wants to earn God's favor, she's got to give. You have to give to earn God's favor. And even though she has nothing left and she's going to starve now, this is what she has to do. She's led to believe she has to do this. In reality, though, she should not be giving. She shouldn't be giving anything right now. She should be being taken care of. And several times, Scripture commands us to literally take care of older widows indeed. But she's a victim of this entire corrupt system led by false teachers who have taken the whole nation astray and taken advantage of them in the process. And don't ignore the context of this little episode about the widow. What comes right before it? What did we just see? Jesus condemning Israel's false teachers and their entire hypocritical system of religion that serves man, not God. And what were these false teachers characterized by? Verse 40. Those who devour widows' houses. That's not an accidental statement. Was this widow one of those disenfranchised widows defrauded by her local scribe after her husband died, reduced to nothing? Also, what comes after this episode in chapter 13? Right after this, Jesus continues to condemn these false teachers and their whole system, even going so far as to say that the very temple itself will be utterly destroyed in judgment. Far from being a place of true worship, the temple had become a place where widows are robbed. Any religion or any temple that does such a thing to a poor widow does not deserve to stand. This temple will fall along with it Israel's corrupt religion. See that starting next week. But this episode here, it's a case in point. This is the fruit of Israel's religion at the time, their whole system. They had strayed so far from God's word and God's will. Instead of defending orphans and widows, they were defrauding them. 
leaving them destitute. Meanwhile, the high priest and the scribes too, they were filthy rich. The high priest was so wealthy feeding off these offerings. And was he, were, were the scribes going to give their money to care for this widow? Think that would happen? I don't think so. They had convinced her that she must give even her last two cents to be blessed by God. And we were meant to read this story and lament the fact that, she, that the widow is brought to give to a den of thieves. As a side note, is this any different than the selling of indulgences? Nothing's changed. Such a system and its leaders will fall by God's hand of judgment. Jesus condemns them. Peter condemns the same thing. In 2 Peter, he says, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, he says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly in- introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned, and in their greed... They will exploit you with false words. But their judgment is not is from long ago, is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Jude similarly says in Jude 12 and 13 of these false teachers, they are like clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars, for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. For you, stand warned. This is what happens to false teachers, those who lead others away from the truth. And sadly, this is what happens to those who follow them, hook, line, and sinker. This is why Jesus takes us so seriously and warns us so seriously, avoid such men as these. Hold fast to the faith. Because again, wolves like this still stalk the church today. And people, countless people, are still a very easy prey. You have to know what you believe, know whom you believe, and know those who are trying to lead you otherwise. This is one area where we are required to be intolerant. Because the Danger is too real and the stakes are too high. So be warned and be on guard. At the same time here, there's a, it's actually another warning, this text, for you individually. I don't want to mention here at the end. We've been talking a lot about false teachers. But everything Jesus says here actually is true of just false believers in general. Sure, you may not be a pastor leading a congregation astray, But you're meant to wonder, have you fallen prey to the same pride? You know, whenever we read about scribes and Pharisees in Scripture, not only are we meant to look out for such people, but we're also meant to look out for ourselves, lest we be like them. Seeing a snapshot of these people, you know, they don't look all that different from a lot of people who line the pews in many churches today. Many have a veneer of religiosity. They appear very spiritual on the outside, but they're really out to serve self. They're not true disciples. They don't really follow Jesus. Some questions for you to consider, just on your own. And do you find that you never crack open your Bible, except on Sunday mornings? Or you never really pray 
to God earnestly, except maybe you're not at church on Sunday mornings. Or maybe what about your giving? You're giving to a charity, giving to church. Do you only ever give if there's some recognition involved or even some reward? How about your speech? Do you find yourself speaking very kindly and sweetly on Sundays, but throughout the week at home, you're vulgar, you're coarse? You find yourself anxious over what others think at church, but you rarely think what, about what God thinks about your life. The bottom line is this. If your life and your character are significantly different on Sundays than they are throughout the rest of the week, you might be like the scribes and Pharisees. And you're not, you're not saved by these works as if you, you earn heaven or you merit forgiveness by reading your Bible or giving money. But these things are indicators of your heart's desires. And consider your heart. What do you desire above all else? What is supreme in your life? Is it Christ or is it something else? Who or what do you exalt? The true worshiper desires to exalt God above all else, to make Christ supreme in their life. Christ is the sun in our solar system around which everything else revolves. And we are just like dim planets, like the moon, merely reflecting his glory back to him. But some people, they want to be the sun. They want the praise. They want to be the center of everyone else's world. They want to be exalted. You really have to consider, does your life reflect a heart that wants to exalt Christ above all else? Or does your life reflect a heart that wants to exalt yourself above all else? And true faith, true discipleship seeks Christ's fame, not your own. Again, remember, literally, the, the central verse in Mark's gospel, the, the driving thrust, the main point when it comes to discipleship, Mark chapter 8, 44, or 34 and 35. I've heard it many times So Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Forever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. How is a person saved and made a true disciple? Simply by faith in Christ. But what is the nature of saving faith? It's not just believing in Jesus, like believing the intellectual truth about Jesus. It's not saving faith. Rather, true faith involves a recognition and a renunciation. First, you must recognize your true spiritual condition. You're dead. You're lost. You have no hope. But then you come to recognize Christ's infinite value because he can redeem you. He's the pearl of great price. He's the fountain of living water. And then you realize to acquire this pearl, you must renounce yourself and everything. You must forsake all that you have and all that you are to gain him. You have to forsake confidence in self, confidence in others, confidence in objects, confidence in religion, confidence in works. Only he can save you and you have to trust and place your confidence in him alone to do that. The true disciple is marked not merely by adding Jesus to his life, but making Jesus his life. Jesus is not an add-on to the meal. He, he is the meal. And the true disciple makes Jesus supreme in his or her life and is going to live that out. 
not practicing righteousness after the fact to be noticed by men, but simply because that's how you exalt the Savior who died and rose to save you. Make sure this is you. In the end, it comes down to pride versus humility, self versus God. If false teachers and false believers are marked primarily by pride, then true believers, true disciples are marked primarily by humility. And finish with a passage you know well, but it fits so perfectly, we can't leave it out. It's another one we, we say often. Luke 18, Jesus tells a little story, a little parable. He says in verse 9, to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. He says in Luke 18, verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus says in verse 14, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But whoever humbles himself, he will be exalted. God is merciful and gracious and in the business of blessing those who humbly bow before him. But beware. Beware false teachers. Beware their judgment. Beware their pride. And beware becoming like them. Instead, always humble yourself before God. Exalt Him in your life. And you will find yourself blessed and exalted to heaven in return. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we, we do that now. We exalt you in our hearts and even with our speech right now. You are supreme. The one true God of all creation as is your Son, supreme. A Savior of the world. You showed us the ultimate love by making the ultimate sacrifice and giving Christ to us to die for us, to redeem us, to pay the penalty, Lord, because we all are hypocrites. We all sin. None of us are righteous on our own. We all stand condemned. But in love and in mercy, you sent Christ to, to pay the penalty for us, to die, to rise again, to redeem us. That makes you, in addition to creation, in addition to your own character, even more supremely worthy of praise because you're not just our God and creator and king, you're also our redeemer, our savior. So how can we not exalt you? I pray our hearts are stirred afresh and seeing you for the God you are and Christ the savior you are and what you've done for us. This life is about you, true discipleship following you. It's not about us and exalting ourselves. We need to continually divest ourselves of ourselves and make more of you. Lord, help us all here to make Christ more and more supreme in our lives and to live that out. Now, being saved, it is important for us to practice righteousness. It is to honor you, to exalt you, not to be noticed by men. If any here have been convicted, I pray that 
They, they accept that conviction, repent. This Christian life, the things we do, it's not to be noticed by others. It's not to earn or merit some goodness or righteousness. We live now, Lord, simply as fallen sinners redeemed by Christ, wanting to exalt him in all that we do. May we be known by that. We pray for your blessing always as we depart from here. May we just be real and and really live out a life that makes much of Christ. He is what it's all about. We long for him, for his return, to be with him. He is the sun to our solar system. May our entire lives revolve around him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.